Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Amanda. Um, my sober... Ugh, I need a light. I don't want to see it. Um, my sober date is 12-26-10. I have about seven and a half years. Um, I will do the classic, what it was like, um, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, and like any normal person, I'm nervous, so... Um, I... So I grew up in a household where, like, drinking was normal. My dad literally had a beer fridge, and um, my dad was OCD. He grew up in a very um, difficult situation, so he um, kind of hoarded. Like, we had a pantry of food, and some of the cans would explode. They are so old. Um, and his beer fridge was literally full from top to bottom with beer, and... Um, I had the um, joyous job of going and getting beers for my dad, and um, I was also got to like sip and drink the beers. Um, I remember from the very first moment, I remember like very young, baby, um, I was like around three and um, I was hooked. Like, I was obsessed with alcohol. Um, anytime I could drink it, I would. We would go to Mexico. I grew up in New Mexico. We would go to Juarez or Palomas, and I could drink the margaritas or the beer. Um, and I just knew I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. There was, like, certain things I wanted to do. One of them was drink, um, be an artist. Um, and so, and I knew it was kind of an issue. I was a little bit leery of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I knew that was a normal behavior, but I, I saw functioning alcoholic, and um, that's what I was, like, aiming for, was a functioning alcoholic. Um, <laughs> like, that seemed like a really good goal for me. And, um, you know, I, I associated alcoholism or drinking. Like, my dad would socialize and he would have fun. I didn't really associate it with the negative stuff until I started getting older. My brother was, um, is 10 years older than me, and he's deaf, so he went to school at um, uh, different schools, El Paso and Santa Fe, and where they had deaf schools, and um, I didn't really associate for a long time that he was my brother. It took me a while, and I, no one taught me sign language. I had to teach myself, and um, I did see my dad and my brother getting into fights a lot. I remember one time my brother threw up in, in bed, not in bread, in bed, and um, I didn't understand what the issue was until I got older and understood that he'd been drinking and he threw up in his own vomit and was sleeping in it. Um, I knew that my sister was kind of angry and um, she had issues. One time I told my mom, like, hey, Marnie's, there's some dude over at her window, and is they're, like, smoking pot or something. And my mom goes to my sister's room, knocks on the door, and is like, Marnie, are you smoking pot? <laughs> and my sister says, no, Mom. And then my mom comes back to me, and um, Marnie isn't smoking pot. <laughs> so that was my family. You know, my mom was totally oblivious to the chaos of our 
um, at it, riddled family. Um, and ever since I was a baby, my mom told me, like, I, I would never sleep, that I um, stayed awake, like, when everyone else was sleeping. And um, that's been a constant issue for me. So, and here's something I've never said in a meeting before, which maybe isn't cool, but it's part of my story. Um, I also saw ghosts. Like, my grandma would come and visit me, and um, I worked with angels, spirit animals, things like that. And a large part of why I drank was because I felt good in my body. I had a reaction that was extremely zesty. I um, associated it with a good time, and it was something that my family did, and um, or at least my father, who I adored. And... Um, it helped me kind of block out my intuitive gifts um, and cope with trauma um, because my dad was an, an amazing and beautiful and complex man, but he was also not a well man, and he came from a much harder situation than I did, but um, I it was on a day-to-day -day basis. I really didn't know if I was going to be safe or not or if I was going to be mm -hmm. alive the next day. And, um, but then there's this other aspect where it was like really homey, like green lawn and a tree out front. And it was New Mexico, so we had cacti. And, you know, it was like this really beautiful fusion of like um, these familiar like experiences that were just so gorgeous and magical with also like, you know, a sick brother, a sick sister, a father who's sick but like amazing, and my mom who, um, what I believe is, um, I guess, Alunani. And um, so when I'm about 12 years old, oh, this, I feel like telling you this, I don't know why, but it feels pertinent. My grandfather had a ranch out in Deming, New Mexico. And one of the things we do is um, we would go out like hunting or there's, this isn't PC too, but we'd go see the Indian rock because there was a huge rock where Native Americans would grind their corn and the, there'd be like yellow marks in the, in the rock. And it was just gorgeous. And I could see all these spirits around and it was very magical. But then there's this other part where they throw the kids back in the truck bed and we would ride on these mountains. And like, there was like literally like two inches of road, like between us, like staying on the mountain or staying <laughs> off the mountain. And everyone was hammered. Like, oh that seemed like a strange, but for some reason, you know, that's just how you grew up. You grew up with, like, this is what you did. You drink, you shoot guns, you, like, this is what you do. And um, so, you know, come around 12 years old, um, I've, been, I've been drinking for a while now. Like, my dad, he was a professor. I hung out with his college students at, like, nine years old. I'm going to a Melissa Etheridge concert with, like, Zima, you know, and oh getting drunk with people, like, twice my age, um, which is weird, because I, I think if, when I was in college, I would not hang out with a nine-year-old and get them drunk, but, you know, I guess it's, again, New Mexico maybe is boring, and, um, <laughs> But um, I've been drinking for a while, and there's guilt I'd have about it, but, um, you know, I always felt really disconnected 
like disconnected from people. I felt like nobody liked me. I also try and start like gangs and like I would like go around the playground and try and beat people stuff and then people up and then people would think that I was boring after a while because we would never beat anyone up or do anything. We just walked around the playground and I was in the front. Um, but I just, the point is, is that I had a really weird sense of social dynamics and it was like the being better than or less than and never just um, together with people. And I also had a hard time with staying focused, I think, because, um, again, there's a lot of volatility in my household. Um, I think that um, I didn't learn things the way that they were taught, and so it was really hard for me to stay focused. And um, I was sleepy all the time, you know? I couldn't sleep. So going back, I keep saying it, going back to 12 years old, we're getting to it. Um, my brother, he's again like 10 years older than me. Um, so at that, he's born January, I'm born in October. So he's about 23, 24, maybe I was 13. I was in eighth grade, I know that, and I was a cheerleader. And um, I didn't really like doing the cheerleading, I just liked the uniform. <laughs> and um, he got into a car accident, and he was in a coma for two months. At that point, he was in Albuquerque, mm-hmm. and um, we would have to go from Las Cruces to Albuquerque, which is about like four or five hour drive, and we would do that on a regular basis. Um, that phone call we got in the middle of the night. Um, you know, when it first happened, I didn't really understand it, but he was in the ICU unit. He and his friend had been drinking and doing um, cocaine and um, you know he almost died he didn't die what happened instead is he came out of the coma um, he refused therapy he came back to live in Crucis and at that point um, my family was my dad had a business it was successful for quite a while we moved into this big house and my family built, and it was not good. My sister, she had a baby at that point. Um, I'm taking care of the baby. My brother comes home. I'm taking care of my brother. And um, my dad is, at that point, agoraphobic. My mom's obsessed with my dad and suicidal. My dad was suicidal my whole life. Um, there was one point where I remember... I always thought if I could just act well enough, I could help everyone in the family. If I could just be good enough, I could, like, make everything better in the family. And if I could just take care of my brother well enough, then everything would be okay. If I could just, you know, help my sister not be so psycho, then everything would be okay. If I could get my dad to not be mad at everybody, then, you know. And so I tried, and I did actually kind of manage in some ways to, like, bring out, bring some light to the family, but it was a lot of responsibility for a child. My mom didn't go to therapy. She used me to talk to. Ever since I was, like, old enough to talk, um, she would just tell me all our problems, and I had to be the one. Like, I don't want to hear about how my dad's a jerk, you know? Like, that was really confusing for me because he was also the man who'd, like, pick me up from school, and we'd go eat enchiladas with chicken and green chili and eggs on top, and, like... To have that conflicting, I couldn't just have my own experience of my family. I had to have, like, my mom's interpretation, too. And that was hard because um, she could be 
you know, really biting with her commentary towards people. And um, so I was trying to take care of everyone. I'm taking care of my brother. And we um, go bankrupt. And at that point, I'd been partying pretty regularly. There was one time I'd gone to a party and I drank a bunch. I'd smoked some pot. I was with my friend. And of course, I had like a pot dealing, growing boyfriend when I was in high school. And um, I had forgotten to feed my brother. So I had my friend in the car and I'm driving literally 100 miles an hour to get to my brother to feed him. And when I get to the door, I drop his key because I'd taken it off the key ring for some reason because I was drunk. And, um, and then I was like, oh, oh well, never mind. <laughs> like I like put my friend in danger and I could and she was freaked out. I could have killed us both. But my logic was this can't happen to me because it happened to my brother. Like this bad stuff can't happen to me. You know, and that's funny because I think there's this other romanticism like my father had that he would tell these really beautiful stories from West Texas, grew up in the oil fields, you know, he struggled on his own. And um, I I liked that romanticism, I was really attracted to it. And one of the romantic things is like all the car accidents he got into and all the trouble that he would get into from drinking. Um, one time he got shot in the head with a BB gun and I had to, like, we went to the dentist for him to get it taken out and I had to, like, hold the bandage up against his head and, like, but there was all this, like, romanticism. Um, he knew the dentist, that's why we went uh -huh. to the dentist to get a BB gun out of the, the side of his, the temple of his head. Um, so I associated romanticism with drinking. And um, we moved to Alabama, Alabama after we go into bankruptcy. And that was really challenging for me. Um, it was challenging because it was my senior year of high school. I don't know how, but I somehow managed to, like, I'm, my great GPA is like 2.3. I barely go to class, but I somehow got into an arts group. And I had a teacher that really liked me. And... Um, I had somehow managed to make it happen where I could graduate a year early. And I get to Alabama, and I decide that I need to be in all advanced courses. I barely even went to class. Like, I don't know why I decided I needed to go to advanced courses in Alabama. So I put myself in the hardest curriculum at a new school. I'm not taking care of my brother anymore, so I'm totally stressed out. Um, he had chosen to go live with his friends in Albuquerque. And, um, and I'm not taking care of my nephew anymore, and that freaked me out because my sister, as we know, is an addict. And, um, and I'm so stressed out, I wind up like pulling all my hair out. And so not only am I stressed out and depressed, like I'm going bald, I'm gaining weight, I'm dealing with depression. Um, I'm graduating early, but I'm going to classes that I don't like. And, um, and I actually didn't drink that year. So I guess my coping mechanism wasn't very great. Um, and then I go to college, and um, I go to a Baptist college because that was the college that my father was working at. Um, also, I found... Alabama to be very racist and that was hard for me um, I could feel the just the dichotomy 
between the people. And it was very um, stressful for me to experience that. Um, so I go to a Baptist college for one year. That's the condition to go to the college of my choice. And the college of my choice was St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And the reason I picked it was because they had no grades and because it was one of like, the leading drinking schools in the U.S. <laughs> and it was philosophy, which I liked. Um, I did the drinking. I didn't do so much the... Um, I didn't do so much of the school stuff. Um, I did, but I, I didn't do it well. Um, I was really preoccupied with drinking. And then after that, um, my parents couldn't pay for my schooling anymore, so I wound up just going and waitressing and drinking. And um, I, I don't. This it seems funny to me now, and it's not pertinent to where I'm at in the story. But when I was in the Baptist college, I found like the one gay dude that was there, and I like befriended him, and that was like my only friend in Alabama. And um, I think I just kind of always gravitated to people that were more artsy or different, or people that had to go through these experiences of being themselves, regardless of what else, whatever, what people thought, no matter what people thought. Um, I always just valued that. So um, I go to community college, I study art there, Somehow I have a teacher there who's supporting me, and I'm <coughs> going and applying to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And I go there. I get in therapy. I get psychiatry. I'm sober for a solid month, and I'm doing great. And then I meet a guy, and we start drinking. And he told me, like, to get off my medication <laughs> and that... Um, that I wasn't really depressed, and we started drinking and drinking, and I, I can assure you he probably, if he had to go back in time, would have said that he wished I'd stayed on my medication and had a drink, because <laughs> I went crazy. Um, I went, and everything was about... Is it me, or is there a lot of activity going on? <laughs> I'm trying to stay focused, y'all. Is this really, like, boring? Um, <laughs> okay, so I'm in Chicago, and I somehow have teachers that really support me again, and one of them tries to get me a job at the Field Museum. I get, I land to the, like, last interview and all I had to do was make a wooden box so I go in completely hungover drunk we'll say drunk <laughs> and I had had nothing to eat besides crackers because I spent all my money on booze it was amazing that I was able to get to the interview and it, all I had to do was make a wooden box and I got a kickback from the table saw. Oh. And I don't know if any of you have worked on a table saw, but um, I was trying to make a rabbit, which is like a little ridge in the wood, and I'd left the splitter up, which is like a the thing that splits the wood, but I'm just trying to cut the wood like in halfway. I don't know how to explain it, but essentially I'm pushing wood up against this, this barrier, and it's building more and more momentum. And finally, it just goes back and hits me um, like a bullet. It just, like, slams into my um, pelvis. Of course, I'm like, no, no, let's keep going. And it takes me, like, another five hours to make, like, this, like, 
awful sideways looking <laughs> box. Um, it was horrible, and it was like my dream job to be able to work um, at a muse at the Field Museum. You know, I'd been doing gallery installation and working at galleries before that, and I lost the gig. Like they loved me. I had my teacher support, and I went in drunk, and I messed up the job of my dreams. So, um, so I come to Austin and live with my family because I can't get a job and my boyfriend and I, well, he's been sleeping with everyone and like, <laughs> you know, like he had a girlfriend in mind already and, um, so it just wasn't going well. So I come here and I'm not drinking too much and my parents now have custody of two of the three children that my sister had, um, my middle nephew and my youngest nephew. My oldest nephew, who I took a lot of care of um, when I was a teenager, he was in Baltimore with the father, and the father had decided that he didn't want the other two. And that, as you can imagine, for those children was really painful. Um, so I, I took care of these kids. Like, I would pick them up from school, I'd drop them off at school, I would do homework with them, I'd feed them. Um, and then we moved to Driftwood. This was in Austin. We moved to Driftwood. I get a car. Um, I'm working at Starbucks. Ugh, I had this gas station that was like my favorite gas station to throw up at. Like, I would <laughs> go to work hungover and then stop there, throw up, and then drive the rest of the way home. That was like, that was my pattern, like, every day. Um, but I was living in the back of my parents' garage. <laughs> and I go and get my cats, bring them here, and I'm still continuing to take care of my nephews. And um, But I'm, I'm drinking more and more. So, you know, my drinking is going up and down. And when I first moved here, it went down. And then when I get to the back of the garage, it goes up. <laughs> and, you know, I'm in and out of waitressing jobs. And just thinking about the guy and the job that I could have had and um, following my mom around drunk, chasing her, trying to figure out life's problems. Um, I think, you know, the ongoing thing for me ever since I was a child is just, like, been having an existential crisis. Um, just feeling like, what's the point, even as a child? Like, <laughs> even as a kid, I was like, what's the point? Um, I remember making a very conscious decision to, um, to worry when I was a kid because I saw people around me worrying and I thought maybe that's what I needed to do to be a better person. Um, I don't, I had weird ideas in my head, but, um, so five years go by and I am waitressing. I am in and out of being suicidal and cutting myself and at that point I'm seeing like dark energies coming around and I'm scared because the grandma who I would see that was like a ghost when I was a kid um, she was schizophrenic so I was scared that I would become schizophrenic that I was schizophrenic and so I um, I was scared that I was going crazy um, but one night um, Christmas I drank like Oh, time's going by quickly. Okay, I need to hurry up. Um, we're getting to the getting sober part, guys. Um, I, I am drinking like two packs of beer, 
some whiskey, I take some pills, I just drink every, I drink vinegar, like alcohol that turned into vinegar, and the next day I thought I had, was going to have a seizure. So I um, had a good experience where there was someone I was working with who was in the program, and people would tell me like, oh yeah, this guy is sober, da, da, da. And um, I was kind of asking questions here and there. And the thing that I liked about him is that he was a jerk. And I felt like if this dude can do it, then I can do it. You know, <laughs> you hear like a lot of times in the program, people being like, be careful about who you tell your recovery. And like, you have to be the best face of AA. And, and you know, him being a jerk actually was the best. Like that was the best face for me because that was achievable. Like, this person who is not marvelous, like, I could do that. So, um, so I go to my, my I thought I'm going to have a stroke and, or a seizure, so I decided, like, that's it. I am sobering up, and I came in the program, and, um, it took me about, nothing glorious, it just started going to meetings, and I detoxed, um, thank God I didn't die, but I detoxed out, you know, I had the sweats at home, and I just went to work and um, went to meetings. That's all I did. I went to um, Westlake, or I would go to Bolden. I would go to Western Trails. Um, I didn't have a car because I'd wrecked it prior to sobering up, and so I'm just going. I'm riding the bus. Um, I move out of the back of the garage, and um, it takes me about three months to find a sponsor. And um, that was, you know, it, it was good in the sense that I, I had talked. There's this one person who comes in. She's like five years sober. She's crying because she can't doesn't have a sponsee and like miserable and da da da. And I was like, I want her to be my sponsor. And um, she came from California, and hers was a, a program of like train your feet. So I did what she told me. Um, I read the big book, and then we did work on it. Um, I did the steps according to what she, you know, told me to do. She told me to call two people a day. I called two people a day. Told me to go to a meeting. I went to a meeting a day. Um, I did what she told me to do, essentially. And that really trained my feet. Um, and I think, you know, I... I made friends in the women's group that I was in, and that was really important. I stayed in the middle of the pack um, while still trying to figure out relationships at work. You know, I'm detoxing again, so I'm, like, throwing trays of people and cheese. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> like, I'm doing insane things, but I'm staying sober. I'm living off of Diet Coke and cigarettes, mm -hmm. and I go from, like, 200 pounds to 120 pounds. And... You know, I thought that if I could just lose weight and be pretty, then men would love, fall in love with me and adore me. And that's true, but I found men that were very abusive and liked to choke me or try and kill me or um, had girlfriends. or And, um, you know, it was interesting is I felt very judged by the community that I was in with the women. And I wound up getting a different sponsor because I didn't feel like at that time she had information on the sexual stuff that I needed help with. And meaning that I had trauma there. And when I sobered up, I realized I had trauma. It turns out that I'd been molested when I was a child. And I'd always had this sense. But now that I was sober, I started remembering. 
And so I was making bad decisions in sobriety. And, um, and there's evidence, like the guy who did it, he wound up killing himself. His children came out, my parent, my sister came out, like this was something that had happened, and it was true. And, um, and I wish I had waited a year, like was suggested, but I didn't, and I survived. And um, I think one of the things that I've tried to carry with me in sobriety is to not judge other people's experience because um, you don't know why they're acting the way they are. Doesn't mean you have to be around it, though. Don't make yourself sick to um, save someone else, but definitely if someone's asking for help, there's usually more to the story. Um, and so I also find out that I'm intuitive, I, that my scene ghost was real, and I start a, my intuitive business, um, and that I've been drinking as a way of dealing with it. Um, so I see ghosts, y'all, and I see angels, and I talk to them and stuff, and I'm not crazy. I'm verified, not schizophrenic. Um, but that was part of my sobriety, and it was a big part of my sobriety in the sense that I thought that I was going to have some sort of, like, spiritual connection that you all didn't have. Like, I was very arrogant for a little while. Like, I thought that I would be able to jump over this human experience and my humanity, and I just knew it all. And that was, I got my ass handed to me. Um, one of the things that was really clear is that I had to develop my skills as, like, spiritually, that I wanted to get information from the highest realm, which I call, which, so get clear messages. So I worked really hard on developing my spirituality. They suggest in the big book, like looking outside of just the program for spiritual means, and so I did so. And um, that helped cultivate my skills. But around um, two years, well, I, there's this one story I want to tell, is that whenever I was um, two years sober, my friend calls me, my friend Shannon calls me. I'd been crying in bed, and I'd been sick, and I said, I want, I want more friends, God, give me more friends. <laughs> and um, my friend calls me and says, hey, I'm living in this apartment complex, and there's a bunch of us who are sober. Do you want to come check it out? And I'm like, oh, this is God answering my prayers. So I go check it out, and it's a little wonky. It's a strange little place, but I liked it. It had character. I go to check out what would be my apartment, and it turns out there was like three carnies that had lived in there before. With <laughs> <laughs> like cockroach poop everywhere, and cat poop, and smelt cat urine, and it was disgusting. Oh my god! And he's like, "Okay, we'll fix it up, five hundred dollars." And oh, I hadn't gone in though. I had just been looking. He wouldn't let me go in. It was such a hazard. He wouldn't let me even go in. And so I'm sitting outside the window, and I'm like. I'll take it. <laughs> but you have to let me work so that I don't have to pay as much, like, pay, do down payment. And he was like, okay. So the agreement is, like, I'm going to paint the walls. He wound up doing it anyways um, because he, did, he was worried I wasn't going to get it done. But um, that's where I met Reese, actually. We would, I would get into fights with him all the time <laughs> and talk about um, higher power putting people in your life um because yeah we didn't get along at first and it was funny like but we just kept working at it we kept working at it and he was really patient with me I would propose 
because I yelled at him a few times. Oh, no. That's unfortunate. But um, anyways, um, so I, I'm moving into this place. I'm walking to um, work one day, and some dude, like, tries to pick me up as a prostitute. And I'm, like, I'm in, like, a white shirt and black pants or something. Like, like I do not look like a prostitute. Um, but I was like, look, God, if you want me to live here, you better get me a car. And then that day I got a text saying, hey, Amanda, do you need a car? So I wound up getting, like, in this program, blah, blah, blah. And um, I got a car. And um, so I think that I know how God and the universe works. And then two years into it, maybe, no, three years into it, because I'm on, I'd moved to a different apartment, I um, got a phone call at 3 a.m., and that night was weird. It was a weird night. I'd slept on the couch. I'd never, ever, ever sleep on the couch. Haven't done it since because I'm terrified. Like, I'll jinx myself, which is silly. But I got a phone call at 3 a.m. that my nephew, who was schizophrenic, had shot himself in the head. And... Oh this is this little boy that I'd taken care of. He's 16 years old. And my mom had told me before that he was feeling suicidal. And I was like, okay, well, make sure all the guns are locked up. Make sure you do something about it. No one did anything. And um, he shot himself in the head. And um, my first instinct was to um, die, kill myself, or to do heroin. And what I did is I, um, I called people. And several people didn't answer. One person was, a, like, a psychic dude. And he was like, well, in this past life, I remember being an Indian, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, who are? Like, oh, my God, that is so not helpful. <laughs> like, why are you? That was just insane. That was insane to tell me that. And then, you know, another friend didn't have a car, so she couldn't come see me. And... Finally, I reach my neighbor who's across the street and or across the way, and she comes over. And um, she did a great job in a lot of ways because she was just there. I just needed someone there. And she held me, and she laid down with me. And come, you know, 7 in the morning, and my eyes are so puffy I can't even see straight um, from crying. Um, she drives me to... She drives to me to my parents' home. And, you know, it's bittersweet because she saved my life. Um, and I'd never said this before in a speaker meeting, but she also, at the time, kept referring to my nephew as blowing his brains out. And she got mad at me because I missed one of the exits because I couldn't see because my eyes were still shut from crying. And she would yell at me and get mad at me. And she was really harsh with me. And it was already a hard time. You know, and I get there, and most of the blood's been cleaned up. His body's not there. It's in the room where I, like, there's, like, all these stuffed animals I'd given him, and there's a bullet shot in the, the wall and the ceiling. And my sister, she's in Colorado, and she doesn't know about it, so we have to tell her. And my baby nephew was next door to him. Um... So I was really sad, and I was really surprised how many people in the program just didn't give a shit. My sponsor's response was, sounds like you had a bad night. Um, 
And so I just fucking held on. One of the things that I heard in sobriety was, whatever you do, don't drink and don't kill yourself. So to move it along, um, you know, a few years go by, I lose like five more friends. Um, one of them also kills himself. At that point, I start vaping. I'm like, dude, <laughs> screw it. Um, I try and get on medication, and that doesn't go great. Um, I have insomnia even worse. And then my dad has a stroke. And when we first go to the hospital, we think he's going to be okay. And um, he isn't. He dies. And I stayed there the whole week with him, the whole entire week. And he was choking on his own liquids in his lungs. And he was in pain. He had just had massive mouth surgery, so he was in agony. And he's post-polio, so he has pain in his feet. So all I could do is rub his feet, and I'd give him energy work, and I'd say nice things to him. I had a couple of friends who came and visited me, and that was one of the most precious things. So I think one of my experiences is that I want to convey is that it's not... I don't need advice from people, I just need people to show up. Mm -hmm. You know, the program was so solution-oriented that I really just needed people to be there and not tell me how to get through it. I had a lot of opinions thrown at me and a lot of suggestions. And a lot of people didn't know what I was going through. And a lot of people judged me because I was sad and I was having a hard time and I was upset. And um, and whatever, like I've gone around and told everyone in the world what to do. So it's not like a better than lesson. It's like a I learned that showing up is really powerful, and just saying how can I help is can be one of the most powerful things that a person can do. And so I see him die. I'm literally there. I go home, take a shower. I, as soon as I walk in the door, he's passing away. I wake my mom up, who finally fell asleep, and I said, "Mom, he's leaving." And I see his face going from full color to yellow. And um, so, you know, after that I have night terrors and I can't sleep even more. And I deal with sexual harassment and stuff like that. And that was something that I, outside, like after this, that happened to me at my job. The guy sexually harassed me that I'm working for and my apartment gets moldy, and blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of just really crappy things that happen in sobriety. And um, I guess, you know, the message that I have, um, I spent a lot of time on the drinking, and I spent a lot of time on the sad stuff. And the message that I have is that, you know, I stay alive because I have people in my life that I love, and I don't drink because... Well, I'm on medication now, and I don't want to mess it up. But also, um, I... It won't make anything better. It won't make anything better. It just won't. So I stay sober, and, you know, and I work the program because I want to have, like, a sense of serenity in my skin. That's why I do it. Like, there's a point I come in, and I do it because I had to, to survive. Now I do it because... I want to have a certain quality of life. And there comes a point where it's like I have to just, like, the sponsor I have now I really appreciate because she um, really focuses on me supporting myself and me, like, trusting myself. And I've earned those stripes. Like, I have worked a program and I have been sober and I have done the work that I get to trust myself a little bit, you know? 
And whenever I have trained my feet so that when shit goes down and I get suicidal and things get hard, and when things get hard, what do I do? I call people and I ask for help. Um, and so I think that's like, that's the biggest takeaway is that like, it can get hard, but it's like the right action. That's the most important message I have is right action because your brain will tell you all sorts of things and it doesn't matter. Like your brain, it doesn't matter what your brain tells you. It doesn't matter how you feel, what you think. Take the right action and right action we know is like call people, read the big book, go to a meeting, ask for help, go be of service, like take right action. And then also it helps because people again will throw five million opinions at you and it doesn't matter if you're taking right action because it gets confusing if you have 20 opinions coming at you what you should do. It gets really confusing. And so if you're taking right action, it doesn't matter what other people's opinions are. So that's been, um, I think that's it. Um, I, I don't know if, any, does anyone have questions? We have like nine minutes, eight minutes. I didn't talk much about sober stuff except that like, do right actions. <laughs> All right, well I'm done. Yeah. Yeah.